could turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll read a passage here. I'd like to uh, share a series of messages from the epistle of 1 Peter this week as we are together uh, these days. So we'll try to do that, but I'd like to read here in 1 Peter 5, uh, starting in verse 8 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll go ahead and make some introductory comments to the messages here out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Salvanus, a faithful brother unto you, I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. When the paper was sent out uh, with a brochure for the Bible school here, I happened to see one of them. It says in there, and I'm reading from it, it says that the theme for the Youth Bible Conference this year is heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. And I had pondered that. I had already felt directed to preach from 1 Peter before I saw that, but it just confirmed that to my heart and blessed me. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. It also said on there that we are all on a journey through life. It is something that many times as young people we don't stop to ponder, reflect, think about. But that is a very true uh, statement. We are on a journey. This life is temporary. None of us know how long our journey will be and what the end of that journey is or when the end of that journey is. But we are on a journey. And we know that this still reading here, that we know that this journey may end sooner for some. It is of utmost importance that we are all prepared to meet the Lord. Interesting words, and it just blessed me. Now, I think Peter surely agreed that we are all on a journey in this life. Uh, Multiple times in this epistle, he refers to the Christians that he was writing to as strangers and pilgrims. And also talks about uh, that they passed the time of their sojourning here in fear. You know, it's interesting to me that that was one of the characteristics as Abraham is considered, he is uh, an example of faith or the life of faith. And we think of the father of faith, Abraham is called the father of faith. And something that's unique and interesting about Abraham is Abraham never quit the journey here on earth. He never quit the journey. As you read through his life in Genesis, in the account or the record of his life, it says he sojourned here. He sojourned there. And it passes, it it goes clear through his life. But he never stopped the journey. Too many times God's people stop the journey. And they make this their home. It's not meant to be our home. Reminds me of a story of someone in Europe who was visiting his friend who was... uh, there at university in, in Europe, 
And as they were visiting there, he looked around this friend's lodgings and he said, well, your lodgings are very scarce. You don't have much here. And he said, uh, how about yourself? What did you bring with you? And his friend said, well, I'm on a journey. And this man who was attending university said, I also am traveling through this life. So we must remain as strangers and pilgrims in this world and continue on the journey. And Peter would surely have agreed that it is of utmost importance that we are prepared to meet the Lord. So this whole epistle we have here in 1 Peter, it's, it's filled with loving instruction to God's children on being faithful to God's calling. It comes from the heart of a man that walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, who not, he was not always the man that he became. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But he became a pastor, a shepherd to the, the people of God. And we have this, this, this epistle is just a loving epistle filled with direction and loving instruction for God's children on being faithful to God's calling. So we read here in 1 Peter 5, in verse um, 10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Uh, I'd like to use that phrase in there for our series title for the theme of these afternoon sessions. We'll just call it the God. Um, <laughs> I, know, I didn't write that down. I did too. Called unto God's eternal glory. It's right here. So I, that's kind of the theme I want to consider. Called unto God's eternal glory. You know, that's an amazing thought. This is not just a calling. Okay, what if we got a, we got a call? The phone would ring this afternoon. Your cell phone would ring and and uh, you're not supposed to have it on in here, I don't think. But your cell phone would ring, and here's a call from a representative of President Biden. And he wants to invite you to come to the White House and meet him. That would be an interesting call. That would be kind of like, wow, what, a, what an amazing call. But I want you to pause and think about this this afternoon, that it is the God of all grace, the eternal God of heaven and earth has called us. He's called us to something. He's called us to eternal glory through Jesus Christ. He's called us. This is not President Biden. This is not the King of England. This is not some other great world ruler. This is the God of the universe. And he's called us to eternal glory. So we want to use that phrase, called unto God's eternal glory, as kind of a theme for these messages. Now, the book of 1 Peter is a book of suffering. It's been referenced several times already today. That's a blessing. Um, Someone has said that it is the most comprehensive document in the whole Bible on God's perspective of suffering. And that's an interesting thought. But it it, it is full of suffering. We even have it in our theme verse here. um, The God who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while. That doesn't sound so exciting, does it? But the call is still there to come. And he is the God of all grace and will empower us on the journey. But this epistle has more to say about suffering than any other book in the New Testament. I don't have down the exact uh, number of times that suffering is mentioned, but it's, it's clear through the book, and we'll see that as we go. So that doesn't sound very exciting, does it? But the other theme that runs through this book of 1 Peter is glory. 
Almost every place you have suffering, you have glory. And, and somehow God does that, and he sees that, and we don't always see that. And suffering to us doesn't sound very exciting. It, sound, it doesn't sound very uh, glorious. But we have suffering, we have glory, over and over, clear through this book. I'll, I'll just read a few things here from the Martyr's Mirrors. We try to get some kind of a backdrop of what of the context that this might have been written in. It tells us in the Martyr's Mirror that Nero... The first five years of Nero's reign as an emperor went pretty well, and people actually liked him pretty well. But something happened there after the first five years, it says, I'm I'm reading now, but after the first five years, he became so full of hatred, murder, and bloodshedding that he seemed to delight in nothing more than in killing. So in AD 66, this is what it says in the Martyr's Mirror, still reading there, Nero sent out a decree Quote, throughout the whole known world, that under the monarchy, uh, the whole known world under the monarchy of the Romans, uh, that there were bloody decrees against the Christians, that they should everywhere be put to death. The contents of these decrees were as follows, quote, if anyone confesses that he is a Christian, he shall be put to death without further trial as a convicted enemy of mankind. Reading on here in the Martyr's Mirror, it says, Shortly after the decree of Nero, a violent and unmerciful persecution of Christians manifested itself in all the countries which were under the Roman domain, which persecution lasted until the emperor's death. The innocent Christians were accused not only of the burning of Rome, but also of every wickedness imaginable, that they might be tortured and put to death in the most awful manner. So we see that over and over, multiple times through this book, Peter's writing to them saying things like this. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God on the day of visitation. And so it's, it's obvious, evidently, these people were being accused of evil and as, as evildoers. And there were many uh, rumors and, and terrible things circulating about them, about what the Christians actually believed and practiced. So it seems that uh, this, as these decrees went out, there was a very bloody persecution that followed those decrees. And it seems to me that this may have been the situation at the back of First Peter. By this time, the, the thought is that uh, this epistle was written from Rome, and it was, writ- it was sent out to uh, the believers, especially in Asia Minor, as we see in chapter 1, verse 1. And so he's calling these people to hope and to courage. And he says things like this, that the God of all grace has called you unto his eternal glory, that after you have suffered a while, he will, he will take you there and he will lead you through. So 1 Peter was written to strengthen and encourage men and women facing suffering and persecution. He was, it was, it's a call. He's calling these people to victory over suffering and trials. It is written out of the love of a pastor's heart to help people who are going through it and on whom worse things were still to come. You know, and Peter himself, he knew what it was like to suffer for the sake and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew what it was like under extreme pressure of standing faithful and standing true to Christ, even to deny the Lord and regret it terribly. Then he also knew what it was like to suffer. It's recorded for us in the book of Acts. Different times that he suffered there and was beaten for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
But he knew what it was like. So it's coming from his heart to these people that were facing this, these trials and this suffering. <clears throat> Called unto God's eternal glory. Okay, let's turn to chapter 1. For today we'd like to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 1. And so I'd like to, to share uh, the subtitle for that is Through a Great Salvation. We're called unto God's eternal glory through a great salvation. Let's read these first 12 verses. <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory." Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you, by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. You know, it so blessed me uh, this morning as Brother Larry was sharing there and he read in Acts 2, Peter stood up and preached there on the day of Pentecost. Oh, it would have been a blessing if we could sit at the feet of Peter this afternoon and hear his message, hear his preaching. But here we have his letter, his epistle from the heart of Peter. <clears throat> All right, uh, through a great salvation. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, when we talk about a great salvation, and God has called us to his eternal glory through this salvation, Peter himself is an amazing testimony of the salvation of Jesus Christ. We could study his life, there's, uh, and maybe we'll try to incorporate different elements or parts of his life and his interaction with Jesus Christ as we try to go through this series But his own life is an amazing testimony of salvation, of the salvation of Jesus Christ. What do you think of when you think of Peter? Would a few of you venture out and share a few thoughts? Impulsive, Impulsive, absolutely. Bold, Bold, that's right. And that's a good thing. It can be a good thing, but it, it, it can be a challenge too for him. What else? You ladies have any thoughts? What do you think of when you think of Peter? Those are the two that really dominate his character, isn't it? Transparent. He's transparent, honest, but definitely impulsive and bold. <clears throat> we see in his life an example 
of someone who's quick to act and speak words that he shouldn't have. That sounds like me. Do you ever do that? Do you ever think back over your conversation and think, oh, I shouldn't have said that or I said way more than I should have? Well, that was Peter. Peter was, he was quick to speak. He was impulsive to speak. He even, more than once he did this, but he even reproved the Lord Jesus and his impulsiveness. In Matthew 16, 22, then Peter took Jesus and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from thee, Lord, that thou should, that this should, shall be, shall, I'm sorry, this shall not be unto thee. He began to rebuke the Lord Jesus. He did it multiple times, even in Acts, when he's praying there on the housetop, and this sheet comes down, and, and it says, rise, kill and eat, Peter. And he says, not so, Lord. <laughs> but that was after Pentecost, absolutely. But we see that. We see his impulsiveness. His, he was quick to act. When the, the soldiers were in the, his boldness can be a blessing, but also can be a challenge. We see when Jesus was there in the garden and the, the soldiers came to take him, he somehow he found a sword wherever it was and he grabbed the sword and he was going to defend Jesus. And you have to appreciate his loyalty and allegiance to the Lord Jesus, but his boldness and his, his, uh, his impulsiveness, Jesus took care of that situation. But we see that impulsiveness, that, 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 uh, the quickness to speak, that, that, uh, that nature of a rough, kind of a rough and rugged nature. And David Ausbaugh, some years ago, preaching about the life of Peter, he called him a big burly fisherman. And I guess uh, <laughs> that gets close to my heart, because that's what I am as a fisherman. Anyway... I thought of that a lot, but a big burly fisherman. And Jesus took this man, and in the first encounter that's recorded in the Gospel of John, uh, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus and said, we have we found the Messiah. And Jesus looked at him, and he said, your name will be Cephas. I'm paraphrasing there. But thou art Cephas, a stone. And it makes you wonder what Peter thought. But Jesus looked into that. He looked into that character, into that heart of boldness, in that heart of, of um, just that heart of boldness. And he says, I'll take this rough diamond. I'll take this diamond in the rough. And he discipled him. And he invested confidence in him. And he ministered to him. And he made him, took this impulsive, strong-willed, undisciplined, hard man, and he turned him into a meek, broken disciple of Jesus who greatly loved his master. Jesus took Peter from the fishing boat and molded him into a mighty man of God, a pillar in his church, he's called. One of the pillars of the church, the early church. And it's after Pentecost, we, uh, we saw that this morning, Peter was very influential in leading out in the church. In the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, In the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, Peter's name is mentioned 57 times. And Jesus took this man who was rough, rough rough around the edges, and he had a lot of rough spots. And he saw the potential in that man. And he invested love into him. And he discipled him. He admonished him. He taught him. And he made him into a pillar of the church, a man of God. That's what the salvation of God can do. Peter's own life is a testimony of the power of salvation. Are there any Peters here today? Are there any Peters here today? 
Maybe your impulsiveness, maybe your strong will gets you in trouble, gets me in trouble at times, my independence, myself, as we heard about this morning. It gets me in, pen, uh, uh, in trouble. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can still take any life, any man, any man or any lady, and take this life when there's a heart there to serve him, a heart to yield to him. And if that life surrenders to the Lordship of Jesus, he'll take that life, however rough around the edges, and he'll mold it into something beautiful for his glory. Hallelujah. A great salvation. All right, let's go here to, to verse 2. Uh, it just mentions here in verse 1 that this was written to Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are five provinces which, in what would be modern-day Turkey, which was then considered Asia Minor. So that was sharing where he, this letter originally was sent out to. Let's look at verse 2. As we, let's look here at verse 2. In this verse, we see the God of salvation. We see in this verse that the triune God is involved in this great salvation that we're speaking about today. First thing we notice is that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I'm not going to say a lot on this. I know it can be, maybe it can be confusing sometimes, and maybe we shy away from this word elect or chosen. But I just want to say this is a very, very beautiful word in the Bible. This is not saying that God arbitrarily chose some to be saved and some to be damned. This is saying that based on his fore, this is the way I see it in my limited understanding, that based upon his foreknowledge, God has chosen that he would have a people through the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has chosen to have a people based on his foreknowledge. And then what he did, he chose that he would have a people. And then he, he, um, he chose that, that the, the people would fulfill his purposes. He would have a people that would fulfill his purposes and show forth his nature and his character here on earth. And then he provided a salvation to make that a reality through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that confuses you, I'm sorry. But that, it's a beautiful word. God chose. And let me go on here and say this. God loved us before we loved him. None of us would have loved God if he would not have loved us first. So in that sense, he chose us before we chose him. Salvation is God's idea. Salvation initially started in the heart and the mind of God. And he purposed and chose to, to have a salvation that could recreate a people and bring them back, to reconcile them back to himself so that he could have a people here on earth. He provided that through the Lord Jesus Christ, or he made it a reality, I should say. But salvation is God's idea initially. And it's an expression of his wisdom and his power. It says in Romans 5, 6, that when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God loved us and gave his son. Jesus died for us long before we even chose to love him. So I just want to say with that that the, this great salvation has its has its origin, has its root into the very heart and person of God. He is the initiator. He is the one that it was his wisdom and his power that brought salvation to humanity. Amen? And so I want to say with that that the church is not just a human organization. And Leonard Ravenhill likes to say that the church is either... Superhuman or superficial. 
It's an interesting statement. The church is not just a human organization that is made, uh, though it is made up of people. Its origin lies not in the will of the flesh, in the idealism of men, as we heard this morning, in human aspirations and plans, but in the eternal purpose of God. Elect, according to his foreknowledge. All right, so that was God. It has its origin in God the Father. It says, through sanctification of the Spirit, this great salvation is through or in sanctification of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. This Spirit is a Holy Spirit. And the word sanctification there has the meaning of being set apart or a chosen people. And, and, and sanctification is used very frequently in the Old Testament where you have the, the vessels, the utensils, and the priests for the sanctuary sanctified. They're set apart for a holy purpose. And the Holy Spirit of God does that. He sanctifies us. He, he convicts us of sin, as we heard this morning. He brings that sin to to bear on our conscience. He pricks us in our heart. And he shows us that sin in our life. That darkness. That, that, that need we have. And then he, he shows us also the righteousness of Christ. He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And he is working. He's came to, to do this work and this ministry. To, to, uh, that God's people would be holy, a holy people set apart unto an obedient life. The Amplified Amplified says of this phrase, consecrated, sanctified, made holy by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ the Messiah and to be sprinkled with his blood. But this Spirit works in us to lead us to victory over self and to lead us to a fruit-filled life where there's the fruit of the Spirit. D.L. Moody was once at a prayer meeting and he was challenged in that prayer meeting by someone who said this. He said, the world is waiting to see a life that is yielded to God and filled with his Holy Spirit. And he took that as a challenge and said, why can't I be that man? And the world is still waiting, young people. The world is still waiting. Someone has said that the world is not waiting for a new definition of Christianity, but a new demonstration of Christianity. <clears throat> a fruit-filled life. So we were called. Uh, we're, we're called into this salvation through the Spirit. And a few thoughts here: Grieve not the Spirit, this Holy Spirit of God. As we are seeking God this week, His Spirit ministers to our hearts. If His Spirit convicts us of sin or of a need in our life, don't resist Him. Don't grieve Him. Don't quench the Spirit. He is working to bring us to. Uh, a life of sanctification and holiness. I had to think of Saul in the Old Testament. It says in 2 Samuel 16, 14, Saul there, he disobeyed God, and, he, he, and God sent an, a warning there. And the repentance doesn't seem to be very thorough. I think it was this, after the second time that he disobeyed the Lord there. And it says this phrase, it says in 2 Samuel 16, 14 about Saul, it says, but the Spirit of, Lord, of the Lord departed from Saul. And that's a sobering word. That's a very sobering statement in their phrase. And it seems to me that David saw this life. And he saw what happened with this life. This was a, a life that this, the Holy Spirit had came on Saul and had anointed Saul. And he had prophesied. And, and there were good things that happened in Saul's life. But after he, he 
turned away from God in disobedience or thereby the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. It seems to me that David observed that because in Psalm 51, when you have the broken-hearted repentance of David for the sins he had committed there, just broken-hearted repentance, you hear this, this, you find this phrase in there as he's repenting. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He saw the value and the importance of that Holy Spirit ministering to him. All right, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. We are redeemed through the precious blood of Christ. And so we see here in this verse that this, uh, the, the God of this great salvation, you have the Father with his wisdom and power uh, providing a salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the shedding of his blood, and through the work of the Holy Spirit to bring a people, an elect people, unto himself. <clears throat> the blood of Jesus is precious, and we can talk more about that tomorrow. But in Revelations chapter 12, the saints overcame the devil, that roaring lion that we read about earlier here in 1, John, uh, 1 Peter 5. They overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb in the word of their testimony. All right, let's look at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so here, uh, the second point here, we have the God of salvation. We will look at the hope of salvation. It was a living hope. And first we notice here that this salvation, the hope of this salvation is God's abundant mercy. That's an amazing picture, but it's according to his abundant mercy. And God is a very merciful God, and we have a hope of salvation is rests upon his an amazing mercy and the abundance of his mercy. I don't have a lot to say on that, but I just, I'll read here for you Psalm 147, verses 10 through 11, some time ago. I was facing a situation in my own life, and it was just overwhelming. And it didn't seem like there was anything to do about it but to pray and commit it to God. And these verses in Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11, just really blessed me. I'll read them to you. It says, He, God, delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. It's just saying simply, whatever man can do in their, in their abilities to to. To, uh, they can do, men have done amazing things in their own natural strength and, and wisdom and abilities. That doesn't impress God. God's not that impressed. We sent some, or America sent someone to the moon uh, many years ago. Those kind of achievements, I don't think that impresses God. He delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. It says this, the Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him. And those that hope in his mercy. And as I was facing this situation, I just, it just blessed my heart. And I said, oh God, thank you. I can hope in your mercy. I can do that. His abundant mercy. It says here, uh, the hope of salvation is, uh, is being rebirthed. He hath begotten us again. Born from above. We receive his life. The life of God. We receive his nature. We receive uh, a new we are made into a new creation in the life of God. He that hath the Son, Jesus Christ, hath life. 
Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. So that's the hope of this salvation, that God calls us, and then he imparts his life into us. And we are born again, or born from above, through his spirit, into a new man. Also in Colossians 1.27, it says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it is Christ in us that is truly the, the hope of glory in our lives. And this birth happens through the word of God, as we'll try to look at tomorrow, later in this chapter. It's a new birth, a birth from above, new life, the life of God in the soul of man. All right, the hope of salvation. Going on here, it says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I think sometimes we fail to realize the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. It says in Revelations 1.18, Jesus speaking here, the words are in red in my Bible, that I am he that liveth and was dead. Just pondering that. I am he that liveth and was dead. That's highlighting and drawing attention to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. Christ's triumph over death and hell is one tremendous victory that brings us a living hope and a joy. And you know, it's just pondering that. And the resurrection, as he's writing to these believers who were facing suffering and persecution, and encouraging them, reminding them the hope of our salvation One of the hopes of that salvation is that Jesus Christ has triumphed over the grave, over death, and over hell. I understand that the early church would greet each other with the words, The Lord is risen. And the response would be, He is risen indeed. So, over and over, there's that, uh, they, they would remind each other and encourage each other to remember, Jesus Christ arose from the dead. The story is told of a man that was standing, looking at a painting of the crucifixion. And as he stood there and just pondered, looking at this crucifixion painting, this young lad came up and and stood beside him. And pretty soon he said, that's Jesus they're crucifying. And the man just nodded and and he kept looking. And pretty soon the the boy said, uh, those are Roman soldiers that crucified him. And then they, after he died on the cross, they buried him. And the man just kind of nodded, and after a while, he walked away from the painting. And pretty soon, the little boy came running after him, and he said, Sir, I forgot to tell you, he rose from the dead. (laughs) Amen? Let's not forget, that is the message of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says that if Christ be not risen, then is our faith, our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Okay, the hope of this salvation is an inheritance Reserved in heaven. In John 14, verse 3, Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there may ye, ye may be also. So three things we just want to note about this inheritance. Number one, it is incorruptible. It is incorruptible. And that simply means it's outside of the reach of decay. It's out of the reach of decay. This inheritance is out of the reach of decay. Secondly, it's undefiled. This inheritance that is reserved in heaven is out of the reach of sin. Undefiled. There's no sin there. It's out of the reach of sin. And thirdly, that fadeth not away. This inheritance is out of the reach of time. There will be no million years or trillion years. It'll be eternal. It's an eternal 
reward, an inter- eternal inheritance. <clears throat> Three things there. Jesus taught us to, in Matthew 5, 20, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. There's no corruption in that reward, that inheritance, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So just encouragement here, this hope of this salvation is that this, there's an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. Let's live our lives in the context of eternity. And he's reminding these, these, these uh, Christians here, he's writing to, that your reward, your inheritance is not here. You're traveling through this world. We're traveling through this world towards our inheritance, which is an eternal inheritance. And finally, he reminds them that they are kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not deliver us from troubles. It doesn't deliver us from trials, so to speak. It doesn't, bring, it doesn't give us a life that doesn't have trials and troubles. And I was just sitting uh, with Brother Mark and Sister Ann as they shared some about the last five years of their life. So God's children, the gospel doesn't say, hey, you'll have a painless life. No. But it does promise that God will provide for us his presence, his grace to overcome and to go through those trials. We are enabled by his grace and power to overcome and to be faithful to the end. And I think of this, this you know, I enjoy, uh, my wife and I, have, and I have six children. Our youngest is two and a half. But it's a blessing for me to walk with, with my children, especially the little children. And some of you that are here that are parents know that, that beautiful blessing that is. But you're walking there with your son or your daughter and you have a hold of their little hand. And just picture that you're walking along a busy street. And you feel, it's such a blessing when you're holding that little hand, when you feel that hand squeezing yours. That's a blessing. It just excites your heart. You feel that little hand is in there and it's squeezing against your hand. But you know, if that little hand kind of relaxes, it doesn't cause me to let go. It causes me to hold on tighter. And that's the picture I want you to think of, that we are kept by the power of God through faith. That faith is our little hand reaching up to God's hand. And when sometimes when them trials come and those, those, those challenges come in life, we find our grip lessening. And it's in those times, God doesn't, he doesn't relax his hold. He, he hangs on tighter and he puts, pours grace and power into our life. Amen. <clears throat> All right, let's go to the third point, verses 6 through 9. Here we have the faith of salvation. We'd like to look at a little bit. In verse 5, this great salvation, it tells us, is realized and experienced through faith in my life. That little hand reaching up to hold God's hand. So the first thing we see here in the, this faith of salvation is talks about the trial of faith. <clears throat> you know, these trials are real. The temptations are real. It says in uh, verse 6, that though for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That's the one thing about Peter. That's the one thing about the Bible. That's the one thing about the gospel. That's the one thing about the word of God. It is real. It's not a, it, it doesn't give you a, a just a, a blown up view or, or, or an ideal of, of things that are not real. 
It's real that we are in heaviness. We face the temptations. We face the trials. So it's real in that sense. And we, we face them. And they are heavy. They become heavy. They're burdensome. These trials and temptations are heavy. The fire is real. <clears throat> and this fire is real because our adversary is real. The roaring lion seeks, that goes about seeking whom he may devour is a real enemy. And he's going about as a roaring lion. He, des- he desires to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He has clear intentions, clear purposes. There is no question Our enemy is real, and he has a definite purpose, and that is to destroy us. That is to destroy you. His purpose is to destroy you and destroy me. He is intent on destroying us. The trials are real. The temptations are real. The interesting thing of that is that God takes that very trial of our faith, that very Challenge, suffering, disappointment that challenges you. He takes that trial and he uses it to do something good in our life. If we bring it to him, if we yield it to him. It can make us better and not bitter, but it can make us bitter if we don't respond to God that way. The trial of our faith is precious to God. It tells us in this passage That this trial of your faith is precious. It's more precious than gold that perisheth. And our our faith is the most precious thing we have in life. Our faith, our faith, the living faith in the living God is the most precious thing that we have in this life. It says in Hebrews 11 that without faith it is impossible to please God. And we see there in Hebrews 11, over and over, that it was by faith Abraham did this. And by faith, by faith, by faith. And it was through faith that those saints in the Old Testament conquered. That they, that they pleased God and that they fulfilled God's purposes in the earth. It was through faith. And so that faith, the trial, that faith is very precious. And the trial of our faith is a precious thing to God. Hebrews 11.33 says about these Old Testament saints, it says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms. That's an amazing statement. Just think about that for a moment. It was through faith that these saints in the Old Testament, these men of God, subdued kingdoms, that they wrought righteousness, that they obtained promises. Do any of us need promises in our life? Someone has said that 80% of the Bible, the 80% of the Bible is, is promises of encouragement and inspiration and blessing to the children of God. 80%. I've never figured that out. But this book is full of promises. And how, how are you going to bring those promises of God, those blessings of God into our life? It is through faith. They obtain promises. They stop the mouths of lions. And on and on it goes. And so it's no wonder that the devil hates your faith. He hates our faith. He seeks to destroy our faith. And and he seeks to destroy us, but God allows these trials to purify us. He actually takes the trial of our faith and he uses it to refine our lives and to refine our faith. It's very precious to God. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design Thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. 
That's in a blessing. When you're facing challenges, just to remember and reflect upon the trial of your faith and that this is something very precious. And surrender our heart and ask God to have his way as we go through those challenging times. Okay, that was the trial of faith. Let's look at the joy of faith. It says in verse 8, Yet believing, says, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, if you would, if you would write that to people who are prospering and just experiencing the many, many good things of life, you could kind of see that happening. But here he's writing to people who are being persecuted, people who are suffering for their faith, people who are in the middle of it, and people who are facing trials, as he just wrote about, the trial of their faith. And he says that you, through your believing, it's through your faith, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. When is the last time that you rejoiced and I rejoiced with joy unspeakable? It just, it just filled you up and you were just, you about couldn't contain it. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's almost hard to believe, but there's joy. Faith brings that joy, the grace of God into our life and makes that joy a reality. Joy unspeakable and full of glory in the midst of the trial of faith. The joy of faith. Faith is a living power from heaven which grasps the promise God has given. Securely fixed on Christ alone, a trust that cannot be overthrown. Faith finds in Christ whatever we need to save and strengthen, guide and feed. Strong in the grace, it joys to share his cross and hope his crown to wear. Faith connects us to the power and grace of God and brings joy into our life in the midst of trials and disappointments. Faith will make our life sparkle and bring joy to your heart. You know, sometimes you meet a young person, you meet an individual, you meet someone, as you look at the countenance of their face, you see joy there. You see, there's just kind of a sparkle. And I'm not talking about a, a carnal, fleshly, earthly sparkle, but I'm talking about the grace of God evident in the face of a person. Faith will do that. It'll bring a sparkle, and it'll make your life sparkle to the glory of God, if I can use that terminology. And it'll bring joy into your heart, even in the midst of suffering. I'll read this account. Among the dairy farms on the Dutch island of um, uh, Zuid, Beveland, Joost Joosten grew up singing. He excelled in Latin at school, but his heart was in the songs he sang, And his parents found a place for him in the choir of the village church. People noticed him when he sang. Fair-haired boy with a clear voice, and they liked him. And in 1556, King Philip II of Spain visited the Netherlands. They gave him him a high mass at Middleburg and called upon the choir from Goas to sing. Joost had turned to 14. The king saw him and heard him. After the mass, he said, bring me that boy. He must go back with me to Spain. But Joost did not want to go to Spain to live in the richest royal court in Europe. He wanted something far better. He hid for six weeks until they gave up looking for him, and the king was safely gone. Then, when he was out of school, he made known his desire to follow Christ. An Anabaptist messenger baptized him in a secret meeting, and the king's officials started looking for him again. 
They caught Yost in 1560. This story is in the Martyr's Mirror, page 651. But they caught him in 1560 and put him in jail. He was 18 years old. Four four interrogators from the Holy Office of the Inquisition came to question him. On five sheets of paper, Yost wrote for them what he believed. He also wrote songs and sang in jail. The inquisitors had Yost pulled on the rack. They had hot steel rods pushed through his knees, turned through his knees and pushed through his legs until they came out at the ankles, but his heart could not be moved. Then the court convicted him and sentenced him to death. They made a little house of straw on the town square. The people came by boat, on horseback, and on foot to see. They lined the streets and the sides of the square, surrounded by soldiers to hold them back, and they waited. And the soldiers brought him in chains. The people had not seen him so pale or thin before. Then suddenly, what was that? He was singing. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Believing, while you're believing. Yost Yostin was singing again. The same clear voice, a man's voice now, and some of them recognized the song he sang. It was one he had written as a new Christian. O Lord Christ, in my mind I see you standing always before me. They put him inside the little house of straw. He was still singing when the flames roared up. It was Monday, the Monday before Christmas, 1560. Yet believing, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. In the midst of the trial of faith. Finally, the end of faith. Verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Faith will lead to the salvation of our souls. Okay, verses 10 through 12. I just subtitled this, The Glory of Salvation. Notice here in verse 10, it talks here about the grace that should come unto you. Speaking about the prophets who inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. And again in verse 11, they testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, the glory of this salvation. You know, there's tremendous glory in this gospel of salvation. There's tremendous glory there because the power of God, like we talked about, the wisdom of God is behind it. The power of God is there, the the, the the life of God is in it. There's tremendous glory there. We already said that Peter himself is an, an example of that. It says here that the prophets inquired and searched diligently for this salvation, for this grace that should come unto you, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. So it, it, the picture there is the prophets. We heard about Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel this morning. And these prophets... And the saints in the Old Testament, they inquired, they searched diligently, they pursued it with passion. They made that the pursuit of their life. Just think, get a, get a picture of that. Those prophets inquiring and searching diligently this salvation that was promised. They prophesied about it and they, they searched it out diligently. And it says something else amazing about this salvation. It says, at the end of verse 12, even the angels desire to look into this. Desire there is simply a strong Greek word referring to a passionate desire. The angels of God, not only the prophets, the saints of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, they sought diligently and they earnestly pursued and they inquired and searched out this salvation of God. 
It says the angels in heaven, the angels of God, they desire to look into these, the blessings and the, of salvation, into this great salvation. They are amazed. They stand in amazement, I believe, at God's mercy and God's love and God's grace that has came and been extended to humanity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they desire to look into it. You know, <clears throat> the story is told back before they realized there were so many diamonds in Africa that someone came up to some children playing marbles one day. And they were playing marbles on the floor. And these children had no idea what they were doing, but they were playing marbles on the floor. But as the individual began to look at what they're using for their marbles, he realized they were diamonds. And those children had no idea. They were playing marbles with diamonds. You know, young people, too many times today we're playing marbles with diamonds. This salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ is a great salvation. The prophets, they, they said this is worthy of inquiry. And, the, and, and they searched diligently. And even the angels of God are amazed. And they are interested to the gospel and to the salvation of God. We've been called unto God's eternal glory through a great salvation. It's a great salvation. And Hebrews writer says that we should um, take heed that we neglect not. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? If we minimize it, if we, if we are playing uh, marbles with diamonds. These are tremendous Powerful promises and in, in, in our fallible humanity, we can't begin to express and to share the beauty and the power and the glory of this salvation. But it tells us here the prophets had a sense of that. The angels were aware, are aware of this great salvation, and they desire to look into it. And so this afternoon, I just want to share in my own I just want to call out to you, if you've never been born again, if if God is calling you to enter into this great salvation through repentance and faith, there is a great salvation, a salvation that the prophets in the Old Testament diligently looked into and inquired after, were interested in. The angels are amazed, and I believe they stand and worship to the Almighty God when they look at His mercy and love and goodness to humanity through His grace. So if you've never been born again, I just want to encourage you God is calling you unto his eternal glory through a great salvation. If you've never repented from your sins, confess them and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us who have been converted in the past, has something else caught our fascination? Is this salvation fascinating to us? Are we playing marbles with diamonds? Is this salvation... Are we amazed? Do we stand? We sing it. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. But do we really? Are we amazed at God's love? And melted to brokenness at his goodness to us? Has something else caught our fascination? Our interest or our passion? What what are we passionate about? What are are we interested in? It says these prophets inquired and searched diligently. They had a sense of the value of this salvation, the greatness of this salvation. 
Has something else caught our fascination, our interest, or our passion? What is it? I just want us to ponder that this afternoon. Have we left our first love? It is sad in the martyr's mirror. I know it's a legend. It says that in the martyr's mirror. But it's sad as a legend that after the ascension of Christ, Peter, the apostle Peter, wept much for days. And when he was asked why he's weeping so much, he said, because I very much long for my Lord. Jesus, Peter loved Jesus. Have we left our first love? Is there something else that has came in between that love for God, for his word, for his salvation? When is the last time, as we think of a great salvation, when is the last time we worshipped with wonder at the feet of Jesus? When is the last time that we just worshipped with wonder at the feet of Jesus? When's the last time that we finished our quiet time and wander love and praise? Wander love and praise at God's great salvation. Things for you to ponder and think about. It's a great salvation. The prophets inquired and searched diligently into it. Diligently into it. And the angels desire to look into it. May God help us to value it and to live it out in our generation. God bless you.